This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. I want to thank you guys for tuning in again. Our audience has been amazing, and the feedback that Colin and I have gotten so far has been overwhelming. We've had you know a lot of really great ratings and reviews. Speaking of that, Colin, do we have any... Any new reviews to read? Yeah, we do. We got a five-star review right here. It says, the oil and gas industry gives deep credibility to the wildcat entrepreneur, even though there's no formula for success and the working of these leaders has been the ultimate black box. Technology will drive the next generation and will lead to a fundamental reconception of the operating model. This podcast is essential to help you get into the minds that will drive this recreation and the next generation of the energy industry. Well done, guys. And that came from... I don't know if it's inspiration base or inspiration bass, but I like to think that it's bass and it's just one of those talking basses on the wall, just like <laughs> spitting off good, just positive podcast reviews. <laughs> so if you guys want to help the show, it would be a great help to us if you could leave us a rating and review. If you like the show, that just kind of enables us to kind of keep doing what we're doing, get more exposure, keep getting awesome guests on, on board. If you guys have anybody that you would like to recommend to be on the show, or if you feel like you have a good founder story that you like to tell, or if you're an investor, if you're in private equity, VC, whatever, reach out to us. You know, we'd love to have a conversation with you. So without further ado, let's kind of hop into our conversation today. We're sitting here with OEG. Uh, OEG Luther Birdzell. How you doing, Luther? Hey, doing very well, guys. Great to be on the show. Good, man. Good. Well, we, we got a guest here with us too. We also have Pippa Birdzell. <laughs> She's a four and a half month old French bulldog. French bulldog, yeah. I got to say you're our first podcast guest that has brought their dog along, so we, we encourage it. We're, we're all about it. <laughs> we run a dog-friendly office. Too. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So first things first, give us your five-second, 10-second elevator pitch on OAG analytics. What are you guys doing in the space? Sure. So, so we're an artificial intelligence platform exclusively focused on upstream. And we make it really fast and easy for geologists, geophysicists, and petroleum engineers to wrangle data together from you know, across their whole portfolio of upstream data, public as well as proprietary, and then make it real easy for them to apply advanced machine learning to develop artificial intelligence. Awesome. Sounds like a really kind of similar, you know, synergy with WellHub data management, which we know in upstream sector is a huge problem. Yeah, yeah, we were chatting just before the show about similar vision there. That's awesome, man. So you guys actually met up in Denver, it right? It was the Energy Tech Showcase. It was either the first or the second one. I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was the second it was one. 2017. Brewery last, yeah, in 17. I think. So was it September 2017? Yeah, that sounds about right. It was fall. Yeah. I went to the, the last one. Jake didn't make it up. Yeah, I didn't he just became a dad. So he I had know. his baby. I had, so. I, had to have, I had to have a kid. So <laughs> <laughs> totally worth it. So before we got on the microphone, you're telling me that... We're actually laughing at the name OAG Analytics because it stands for oil and gas. And as we all know, that's not the traditional way to spell oil and gas. So you're saying that you came from outside the industry. You want to give us kind of, let's just talk about what your background was and go from there. Sure. So studied electrical engineering, graduated with my second degree in 2000 and was recruited into the software industry You know, at the tail end of the dot-com boom. I spent the front part of my career in consulting designing and implementing systems to make data more valuable to subject matter experts. Did this for companies like NVIDIA and AMD, so semiconductor manufacturing, did it for healthcare, did it for big insurance, did it for financial services, did it for Sony Music, you know, touched all these different industries. 
And through that process, actually with AMD, I met the founders of my last company who had built the test harness for Enron's online trading system. So when Enron went live with that, you know, there was nothing that would simulate 50,000 transactions a second in a system that didn't have a user interface. So on that foundation, they had created this startup. I joined them in parallel with closing their Series A in 2007, and that was my first you know, startup experience. Their transition from consulting to product at that point. And one of the kind of key pivots we did with that business in 2007 was shifted the focus from test automation to creating systems that looked enough like a data center, but were much less expensive and didn't have all the downtime issues. So for example, you know, we were working with a bank that had a mainframe. And when that mainframe went down, their global team of developers came to a grinding halt. To make matters worse, the bank never knew which four hours a day that system was going to go down, but it, it was always down four hours a day. And through my consulting and all the travel I'd done with that, we, you know, there was this technique that was really specialized programming, and really not too dissimilar from like AI and machine learning that kind of the world thought of as, you know, requires these really specialized programmers to do. And accordingly, it was really only used on a limited basis. So the founder's vision was to make this self-service enable anyone in an IT organization, even many business analysts, to create these systems without having to write a single line of code. We grew that business, exited to uh, Computer Associates in 2011. It was a real home run, 12.5x return to our Series A investors. I stayed on with CA for a couple years and then resigned in 2013 with the intention of you know, taking my learnings and breathing life into a new business, which, uh, again, we were chatting a little before the show, had been, had been a lifelong dream. My grandfather ran a meatpacking business in Manhattan, you know, in the meatpacking district before it was like fancy retail. Like they actually used to pack meat into boxes. So they actually did pack meat there. Yeah, no, there, there were freezers with, you know, cows hanging in them, you know, hundreds deep. And that was, I was, you know, that was my introduction to a business. And I used to run around with the maintenance guys. I had my own hard hat. But literally, if you asked me when I was three years old, like, you know, Luther, what do you want to do when you grow up? Do you want to be an astronaut? Do you want to be a fireman? It was like, no, I want to start a business. So, you know, we're, we're pursuing a lifelong dream here with making AI self-service, being enabling this industry to develop that without having to write a single line of code. So collective experience of you know 15 years when I founded it, you know, it's now over 20, of taking technology that's generally slow, expensive, really hard to build yourself, and delivering that in a way that enables everybody out there to do it themselves quickly. It's almost mind boggling for me. Like it's hard to wrap my mind around that, that you could take something so complex as machine learning and just have it essentially where it's drag and drop, where you don't have to write a single line of code. I mm -hmm. mean, you said it right before we started recording this podcast, Luther, that we're not talking about shit that's happening in the future. You know, we're talking about stuff that's happening right now. And it's pretty cool technology if you're able to, to do that. I mean, think about it's like WordPress when you're building the website, you know, you can drag and drop and you don't have to write any code, but now we're doing it in machine learning applications. It's kind of wild to think about. I love technology. There's so many, <laughs> there's so many cool, there's so many cool things that are being built. So let's talk about something like, so I guess to kind of give the listeners a little bit of context, what are some of the use cases or maybe some of the more common use cases that you guys are kind of finding with, with existing customers? Sure. So the first one really starts with the data. And, you know, having had a pretty broad perspective on, you know, how a lot of different industries use data and then working with those industries to help optimize it, the first thing that we saw when, when I founded the company in 2013 was a lot of data trapped in proprietary formats and proprietary systems. And then as, you know, oil prices started to decline, you know, 14 and 15, 
the lower oil prices went, the fewer people had access licenses to those systems. So it wasn't that people didn't want to collaborate on these upstream asset teams, is it was just so painful to get the data into a common form that it just, people didn't have the time. So the first thing that we did was to address that was get all the data out of these systems. And these are, you know, your, your SQL server and your Oracle data, proprietary databases, Petra, Petrel, Geologics, Wellview, Passin, Ares, PhDWin, you know, all the standard software and upstream, building connectors, we can get all the data out into a standard form and then automate processes to normalize all the data, normalize all the headers, make sure all the units are consistent, you know, pretty tactical stuff. But in the aggregate, especially when you automate the process for doing that with your IHS info and your drilling info data, it takes a process that's like days to weeks to get the right integrated data set all QC'd and reduces that to minutes through a point and click interface. Yeah. So that was step one. And that, that on a standalone basis solves a material problem, which, you know, we're all, we're all nodding our heads. It's, <laughs> that's, you know, kind of step one. That wasn't, you know, the kind of the end goal for us. That was really a prerequisite that we had to make data management basically, you know, as close to trivial as we could and fast to then take the next step, which is, you know, there's a tech buzzword for this now, it's called auto ML. But, you know, five years ago when we started, kind of the vision was, yeah, you can hire, you know, maybe you can hire if you can find the people, folks who have enough subsurface experience and can, you know, code ML algorithms by hand to, you know, train some ML that can predict production much more accurately than a type curve. And then, you know, the, I'll get into the use cases in a second. But it basically is, you know, instead of trying to guess which out, which configuration of which algorithm is best for any given data set, you use the power of the cloud, right? We have unlimited storage, we have unlimited compute, and we only have to pay for that compute when we're using it. So we can spin up 500 or 1,000 compute nodes, try every configuration of every reasonable algorithm, and then objectively measure what actually is the best for a given data set in about five minutes. So we've now taken this really Sisyphean data task, compressed that down to minutes, and enabling users who, without writing a single line of code, to get world-class machine learning in a matter of minutes. That's a foundation then when we deliver that machine learning with enough transparency, and we have like mind-numbing transparency into all the configuration, how we're using all the data, that with enough transparency, enough control over the data that's being used and transparency into the analysis, that's a foundation on which the industry trusts this enough, trusts these insights enough to actually change the way they deploy capital. So that when they're running simulations that they configure on these machine learning models, they're able to identify bright spots where they can get a, drive a lot more capital efficiency by turning, you know, dialing back the profit, maybe dialing up the fluid, tightening the cluster spacing, but with longer stages, because those are the insights that we've learned from that data. We've identified insights like just soaking the wells longer in certain areas, usually as a function of certain geologic properties. So kind of using AI to help slightly, you know, do slightly more granular delineation of acreage. And look, you know, the, with the cost, the median cost of these wells at 8.4 million, if you, you know, if you're overstimulating in certain areas, there's millions and millions of dollars of value by just dialing back a little bit. But the challenge with the data, as you guys know, is even if you can get it together, it's all so auto-correlated, you know, and everything relates to everything else in a data set, the human mind just can't hold everything constant with respect to everything else and essentially isolate the effects of cost on revenue. So machine learning, the right machine learning is able to do that. 
we started with a laser focus on completion optimization and specifically, you know, planning the new wells. So as an input process to helping evolve AFEs, as we've grown up and, and the market has asked us for more, we have several use cases now around just working with rock data. So taking the existing models out of you know, Petra and Petrel and using those to automate a process for making you know, 15,000 LAS files valuable that were just sitting in a file share of, of one of our customers recently. There's also things that we're doing with core data kind of along the same lines, automating the process. And that's essentially how we, th- how we think of AI is just teaching computers to do things that we generally only think of humans being able to do today. Machine learning is usually a significant part of that, but especially in upstream, the statistics aren't enough, right? You've also got to teach these models physics, and we do that through feature engineering. So we've got a bunch of things we do just to fundamentally improve the rock data, and then also tying the rock data to production earlier in the overall upstream workflow. So, you know, if we know from physics and first principles that there's certain things that are really important drivers, if when we go and look at those, you know, contour maps and, you know, relative to actual production in the reservoir, if the correlations aren't as high, it's not that the physics are different. Um, it's that, you know, the per, you know, that there's a high return on investment by, you know, maybe investing more in developing the perm map or developing the, the porosity map if there's not, you know, high enough correlations with those drivers. So more informed deployment of capital based on objective measurement from the data that's uniquely possible with these more complex analytics that, you know, effectively just can't do by hand. So that kind of take, that's the rock side. We're doing some stuff with drilling, mud weights, drill bits. Again, when you tie the geology data, the rock data together with the drilling data, there's more informed decisions. We've all heard the stories about, oh, if we'd only checked with the rock department, you know, before we drilled this well, we would have known that we were going to get into something here that wasn't going to work for the standard drill bit and could have avoided, you know, all kinds of unproductive time and, you know, some, yeah. some unproductive projects or projects that otherwise could have contributed to generating free cash flow. Completion is you know, still our main you know, wheelhouse use case in terms of value creation, where we've identified insights for customers this year of you know, 27% improvements in capital efficiency across an entire drilling, across an annual drilling program by you know, helping A, reduce costs where things like you know, wells are being overstimulated in certain, in certain parts of the acreage, or things like you know, if we soak the wells a little longer here, Based on these rock properties, we can get, you know, we get better wells. So spacing, you know, the whole depletion concept, and there's not like a simple data point for that. That's one of those things with feature engineering where our data science team, who are all, you know, PhD geophysicists, PhD petrophysicists, reservoir engineers, who are also bona fide world-class data scientists, have been able to contribute a lot and really accelerate our platform, combining the really advanced statistics with the core physics and you know, essentially teaching AI how to deliver the most value with both. And the net of that is that our users are able to do this after you know, a couple months of training with us. They're able to manage all their data together, train this world-class machine learning, and then use that to develop AI that identifies these bright spots about you know, where, they, where certain changes will, will drive a lot more value. 
lastly on that, and sorry, you know, this is a big, uh, this is a big con. You know, there's a lot, we've been busy. We've been busy. It sounds like it. There's also some application then on the asset valuation side and competitive analysis side, kind of around the same, you know, through the same lens of running these simulations. And our customers are predicting things like drill time. It's not just a product, you know, predicting production. Uh, we're introducing predictive equipment maintenance in 19. So what we are delivering because the market is asking is for a really easy to use web-based platform with virtually infinite scale that addresses the high value use cases from the wellhead to the boardroom. Jeez, that's a mouthful. So I get excited, first of all, when we talk about all this, you know, before we got on the microphone, we're talking about data issues and oil and gas. So someone like me understands everything that you're talking about. I get excited about it. What are you seeing from the market in terms of adoption? How willing are people to take a look at this technology and actually implement it? Because we know everybody's getting excited about, especially when you talk about machine learning or artificial intelligence, some of the buzzwords, they get really excited about it. But what are you guys seeing in, in the market firsthand? The market today, you think really everybody's ready for better data management. You know, both the early adopters and the mainstream adopters, if we're, you know, going to kind of just segment the market, kind of, you know, crossing the chasm style with just, just two simple buckets. AI is still largely, you know, AI and machine learning is still largely in the realm of the early adopters. But as we're starting to get, you know, entire, not just, you know, test wells that are coming out better, you know, three, four, five wells in a quarter, but we're seeing more and more companies delivering material value that they can to their shareholders and their investors that they can realize on the balance sheet. You know, this is wells that are producing more and costing less. The more data points there are around that, the more the mainstream kind of adopters of technology, which really most of the oil and gas industry is, at least with software digital technology, the larger the market for this gets. And, you know, 2019, 2020, the next couple of years, we're going to see 75% of the companies, at least 75% of the companies having full AI deployment, or you just can't be competitive. Yeah, I mean, at that point, if you don't, if you're not leveraging these new technologies, you're just falling behind. Well, there's just, there's so much value in the data. And especially now, you know, we're in a more, you know, there's more pressure on optimization than there was even a couple months ago. As long as prices stay high enough that activity doesn't shut off, that just, you know, companies have, it's, it's an opportunity to help the, you know, help push the industry to adopt this even quicker. Do y'all ever think about like, you know, we always talk about how much value there is in the data. And I think on one of our previous episodes, IBM said, uh, data is the third resource in oil and gas, which I completely agree with. But you guys ever just like, imagine, like we always talk about all this value and how much money you're going to save and how efficient things are going to be like, where's all that money go? Like, <laughs> you know, we're saving all this money, then what happens? And, you know, it's got huge effects from a macro scale on the global economy. If we're producing oil cheaper and drilling wells cheaper than what happens to the price of commodities over time. It's just like interesting to think about it on a macro scale of what's happening in the digital space. I think it's sometimes it's hard to wrap your head around like AI and ML in the space, especially, you know, both of us being in this space for so long and seeing like the current state of most data and how it's just complete garbage. And then thinking about training the machine learning algorithms on top of that. But at the same time, like oil and gas is prime. I mean, you think about just how engineering and technical heavy, and then on the, also on the financial analysis side, like those are three things that, algorithms can do way better than humans can do. And then once you can train those, you can actually focus on essentially building new analysis on top of that because you can automate it from that point, right? Yeah. And now you can 
focus on just being better and better and better and then automate new models and automate new models and automate new models. And it's, it's kind of crazy to kind of think about what that could really turn into across an entire organization. Indeed. Although, you know, one of the things that, that we, at least we see is in really stark contrast to how AI has been deployed across the consumer sector, where, you know, a lot of the companies where search, social media, retail, entertainment, those spaces are characterized by these massive volumes of these really trivial decisions. So Google doing three and a half billion searches a day, where each of those searches they're using AI to recommend a handful of ads that affect some fraction of a cent. I mean, it nets out a you know, massive amount of money, but it lends itself to like, you know, just try different stuff, right? You can kind of A-B test really quickly, really inexpensively. And that's an easy, a much easier thing to automate. You know, you kind of look at the other end of the spectrum and like, you know, it's like human finger on the trigger, right? That, you know, the drones, like that's still a human that, that pulls the trigger there or presses as it were. What we see, you know, for the foreseeable future in oil and gas, that ultimately humans are still making these decisions about how to allocate capital through the exploration, production, you know, and extraction of oil or, you know, oil and gas. But where AI can help them so much is automating, essentially building the menu that we order from. You know, so I kind of like a small data example would be like, you know, if you looked at my Google Maps and the restaurants I've been to in the past month, like, could you guess what I want for lunch better than if you hadn't seen that? Yeah. But if we went back over 20 years and got the data on every single piece of food I've ever bought, you know, how I put it together, what I ate and when, and something could really understand that, that thing could probably make a more and could build me a better menu. Well, for upstream, it's similar where, you know, today it's a manual process that can take weeks to come up with a couple of viable well designs for a pretty large acreage. Well, if we can automate a process that can look at hundreds of millions of options in minutes and then just show me the ones that are, you know, that really work based on the data and the physics, again, that we've trained into the AI, well, now instead of spending 90% of my time coming up with those two or three options, I can spend a fraction of my time coming up with a larger set of options that I, I probably wouldn't have found any other way. And the companies who are ordering off better menus are getting better results. So one of the things you said was that you know humans are still the ones who are pulling the trigger on, on allocating capital. Have you thought about like what about you know four or five years from now? Do you think it's possible? I was having this, I was laying in bed the other night, I just couldn't sleep, and I was thinking about this. I was like, what if you were able to essentially build a model and say we had to raise a fund for like a billion dollars, and now you have you know you have public market data in there, you have all the M and A activity, you're able to automatically do you know reservoir analysis and so on and so forth on the financial side. What if you're able to train all this and just press a button and just like see what it can do? Do you think we'll get there? For what? maybe this is like crazy, just like dystopian. <laughs> idea or, or do you think that's like not really far off i mean that's already here i mean press the button see what we can do is is something you know we're already discussing working with private equity funds and and others to help accelerate you know deal flow yeah. and you know there's non-ops too who like if you can look at every non-op opportunity every day you can make more informed decisions about you know non-consents and get in on opportunities that you know you otherwise wouldn't have been able to see. So that's so our, that, that's that, happening. That's our business model is non-ops. So that's why our ears pricked open. You said that it's like oh shit. It, it's not a big part of ours. Full we disclosure. Do we, 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 re, we, we really focus. The E and P's are the core of ours. But you know these ancillary use cases. It's we talk about. I mean new technologies. Just in, even in the non-op space, you want to talk about artificial intelligence or using smart contracts with blockchain applications. There's so many it's like it seems like repetitive talking about the buzzwords but man you just think about some of these emerging technologies and what they can do for upstream oil and gas it's just 
It's kind of mind-blowing to think about what oil and gas could look like in the next 10 years. For sure. And, you know, especially, you know, with all the acceleration of battery storage technology, and, you know, more renewable and hearing things like, you know, GM taking all their cars to, you know, off of hydrocarbon in a, in a pretty aggressive time frame. This industry has to get more efficient to continue to thrive. And, you know, we're we're helping contribute to that. And look, if the oil industry has proven anything over and over and over again, it's resourceful. Like this industry is built to survive. Like there's just so much passion for the work. You know, the, the right pieces come together and get deployed the right way at the right time. They kind of always have. You know, we have ups and downs kind of in the trust there. What's so exciting about this is that, you know, someone like me that wanted to get into oil and gas, you know, I, I got into the field and I always wanted, you know, I've always admired the wildcatters of oil and gas, but those opportunities aren't really there anymore. You know, you're not going to go fucking discover some huge field up in North Dakota or West Texas. It just the opportunities aren't really there anymore. But then you look at what's happening on the digital side and there's so much opportunity in digital technology within oil and gas that you are, you know, we're going to look 10, 15, 20 years from now, and you're going to see the people like ourselves in this room that are building the foundation of digital technology for oil and gas. And it really is kind of a gold rush per se, because I tell everyone that's outside of oil and gas that what's happening right now in the space and technology is a gold mine. And it's just, uh, man, I, like I think about this a lot, just what's going to happen over the next few years. It's, it's crazy. But there's also the whole offshore piece too, which, you know, our, our primary market is, you know, the North American onshore unconventional or, you know, fracking if, if you're not in the industry, but for the offshore platforms to go unmanned, which, which they will, you know, creates incredible opportunities for safety. Right. And there's also all kinds of remediation you can do if you don't have humans on the platform. You know, for example, like in data centers, when they have fires, they just suck all the oxygen out. You can't do that if there's people there. So, you know, just as a, as a simple example, but there's all kinds of things with you know the offshore platform of the future being unmanned, more of it subsea. Well, the only way you can enable that is with really smart software. Yeah, very, I mean, we were good friends with the folks over at Weatherford, and I mean, they were giving us a run through through their automated tongs, their casing tongs, and right now they have them where one man has to run them compared to, I don't know, five guys on a casing crew, and they do have the software to where someday it'll, you know, he can run casing without any personnel on board. So, so you said something interesting right there, which you're not focused on anything offshore, you're focused on land. And it's kind of funny that you say that because everybody in this space is typically focused on land assets. I mean, it is, is there a reason that y'all are going about that route, focusing on onshore? So I'm an engineer, you know, in, in my DNA and kind of the guiding light for me strategically has, has largely been follow the money. Yeah. So, you know, in 2013, it was like most valuable technology. That was pretty clear. It was this AI, big data cloud. Look upstream oil and gas is the fastest growing area of the U.S. economy. And that's really what led me into this. Looked at how capital was allocated and of the roughly half trillion dollars that's deployed in DNC every year, 90% of that is, you know, drilling, completing the wells. We started there, right? Optimize how that capital is deployed. When we look at, you know, there's a statistics part of this and there's a physics part of it. And, you know, our business is really about making it easy to marry those together. There's enough onshore wells, you know, especially of these, you know, the horizontal multi-stage laterals that, you know, or the, you know, the general, the, the modern fracked wells, that there's enough of them for AI and machine learning to really work. One of the big challenges with applying this technology, the AI technology offshore at this point, is there just aren't nearly as many wells. 
And there are use cases, you know, niche use cases within it, especially around equipment maintenance and such, where you just have, you know, have a lot more cycles. But for fundamentally proving that the technology can help you get more oil out of the ground and lower cost, you got to be able to predict production. And to do that with AI, you know, having many hundreds, thousands of samples is still, you know, relatively small data sets in terms of number of rows. Now, granted, we have plenty of columns, but just in terms of number of rows, in 2013 and even more so today, you have enough data to really do that reliably. Offshore, you know, there's, they continue to drill more wells, you get more data. There's also the general trend in the industry that companies are sharing data more. We're seeing that both onshore as well as offshore. Yeah, there's absolutely a shift there. Right. So the, there is a future for AI being widely deployed offshore, not just for controlling the platforms, but for really optimizing where to drill, how to drill, and you know, max optimizing capital efficiency the way we are doing onshore today. But just it's, it's a function of drilling activity. We, we need, we've got enough activity onshore that's why we started there. Is there a certain threshold for the size of data set that you need for that to be successful? Or is it kind of just more the better? So it depends on the data. A company that has done a thousand wells exactly the same way is a great opportunity to do a study about geology. It's not a great opportunity to do a completion optimization study because everything was done exactly the same way. Aside from that, we use a rule of thumb. We're looking for two, we're looking for proprietary data on about 200 modern wells and that or bigger is a great foundation but if you have that data it's really easy to trade it's getting easier and easier to trade that data and plus that data set up to 500 1000 wells and you know at that point that's really really high fidelity results much faster than a type curve so i've had an interesting thought going through my head right now like i'm thinking about the applications between offshore and onshore and you know traditionally deep water and or just any offshore application has been more advanced technology than onshore. You know, you got bigger budget, so you got more advanced downhole tools, more advanced surface equipment, et cetera, et cetera. But almost every startup that I know in the space is focused on onshore mm-hmm. operations. Like nobody's wanting to really tackle anything offshore for, you know, some of the reasons that you listed and, and some other reasons. So it's kind of weird to think about like, what if offshore operations start to fall behind onshore operations in the aspect of digital technology where it's traditionally they've always been ahead when it comes to downhole and physical equipment. It's kind of something interesting to think about. Like nobody really wants to tackle offshore problems right now because it's too, it's just too high barrier. Yeah. I can also say, you know, as a, as a startup and we are, you know, getting to the size that we're staffed to engage with the majors, but, you know, early stage working with the smaller independent, the smaller and medium independents, who you know have enough activity and enough data to be really meaningful, but they're just culturally and they're just they're set up better to work with you know a startup that's got five ten people on staff than you know trying to work with the majors at that early small stage startup and you try to go chase a major. I mean, you can just be burning or spinning your wheels until you run out of capital. And yeah, we've all heard the love the you know the love you to death stories there. So I I suspect that that may have a little something to do with it also of you know the early stage startups focusing on the independents because they're easier to engage with shorter sales cycles 
get the proof there, and then you know the the rest of the market, both domestically and internationally, becomes more accessible. You said you guys are staff now, building up the team. Where are y'all at in your process in terms of growth, and you know how many clients do you have on board, how many use cases, et cetera, et cetera? You want to give us any insight? You know, I, I did mention at the you know kind of before that we we are fundraising, so I don't want to put too much you know valuation guidance out into the, the ether <laughs> at this point. But I can say, you know, our team is over twenty now. We're working with you know many customers. We're deployed over three million acres. We are optimizing over a billion dollars of, ca- of total capital spend across you know the budgets across our customer base, and we more than tripled ACV, which is basically you know, more than tripled booked revenue in 2018. So the industry is, is on a fast adoption curve and we're moving fast with them. Are y'all mostly, are, are all those use cases in the Permian or do you have different? So we're in a few different basins. We are working Permian, we are working Midcon, we're working Rockies, we're working some Appalachia and the good news, and we're also some East Texas. You know, the good news is that the technology, the platform is universal across all the basins, also universal across liquids, dry gas, mixed gas. We've seen it all at this point and have produced, you know, consistently produced very similar results, which is at least 10% capital efficiency optimization, which is achieved by, you know, either more oil and lower cost. And we've delivered, you know, over 27 insights for over 27% completion optimization that have had, you know, net values on an annual basis of over $100 million to some of our customers. Very impressive. Wow. So you guys have a, a SaaS revenue model? Yes. Okay. We probably have some users that aren't familiar with well, SaaS or what a SaaS yeah, revenue yeah. model so SaaS is. So. is a, software as a service, and it, it basically, instead of traditionally how we did software, where you pay the majority of the fee up front, you get something that you install on your desktop, and then your IT department has to manage, and then you, know, you pay a maintenance fee for upgrades over time, which is kind of the traditional way software has been done. SaaS really centers around everything's web-based, so there's nothing new to buy. There's no infrastructure to buy. There's no servers. There's no new people to hire. And there's no software to install and maintain over time. It's just, you know, whatever, you know, you access it through the web browser. You know, we deploy updates every week. That's all seamless and transparent. So it's the subscription model software to everybody, you know, it's hard not to have at least a subscription yeah. to, to <laughs> iTunes yeah. or, or something you gotta at have this Netflix point. Something nowadays. Yeah, Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> that's Netflix is you know TV in a SaaS model. So we're we're AI for oil and gas in a yeah. in a Netflix SaaS model. <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be their new term instead of Netflix and chill. It's gonna be OAG and chill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll we'll see when Netflix is describing themselves as the the OAG of the entertainment industry. We'll know we've hit a milestone. <laughs> So which, which challenges, I know it's, it's all probably not sunshine and rainbows throughout the entire journey. So like, what are some of the challenges that you guys have experienced that kind of stick out to you? So, you know, in the overall journey, you know, I mean, huge challenge of just kind of throwing myself into this, knowing nothing about upstream oil and gas when we started. That was an exciting and fun one. Building the technology was extremely challenging, you know, especially on a shoestring budget. I, you know, did the initial seeding of the business, built our prototype, and then, you know, really just raised a little bit of capital to to get our get to minimum viable product. So that was also challenging, very rewarding. The, the downturn, that was a different kind of challenge. That was a little more painful, not as much fun. But, you know, I'd taken money from investors at that point and, you know, that was sacrosanct. Like as long as there was the possibility of keeping this thing going, I did and, you know, 401k evaporated through that process and a, a bunch of other things. Yeah, we know we know all about that. Man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just how, it's how the game goes. Let's kind of touch base on what you just talked about, how you had no prior oil and gas knowledge. And how did you go about 
coming over, you know, getting over those hurdles because oil and gas is a challenging industry. So did you bring on the right key personnel that, are, that was able to communicate and understand your technology and also had that previous understanding of oil and gas? Tell about how you built up the team and kind of got through those challenges. Sure. So, you know, I had, this wasn't the first industry, like industry I was new to, or I came into with a strong technology background, but, you know, knew like nothing about the industry itself starting. And, you know, I really believe my experience has taught me extensively that, you know, customer driven roadmaps are the only way to develop software. So, you know, we set things up that we were doing, you know, no cost pilots, you know, co-development work where companies were basically lending us their time and we were, and sharing their data. And then we were provide, finding things in the data that they hadn't been thinking about yet. So there was definitely you know, a mutual exchange of value, but you know, hearing from the industry you know, right from the beginning that you know, Luther, we don't want Spotfire for the web. Like we've got Spire, we love, we love Spotfire and we're, we're Spotfire partners, but we can't really you know, develop AI. Spotfire's not connected to the cloud yet. Can't develop AI you know, codelessly in Spotfire yet. And this is you know, 2013, 14. So what we really want is, you see this scatter plot here? We're looking at profit relative to oil production and fluid relative to oil production and stage counts and stage spacing relative to oil production, all that other data, lateral lengths. And we see these really weak correlations. It's just this big, crazy, random cloud of points that nobody can look at and make a more informed capital allocation decision. Well, if you can give us something that's like really fast and easy to use that shows us basically the, the correlation of the effect of capital, you know, capital on revenue, that that was, you know, the holy grail. So that's what we built. And we did that with this really, really strict adherence to Occam's razor. So every question we were asking ourselves as I started building the team was, what is the simplest way that we can do that? What's the simplest way to do that? And it started as, you know, some basically, you know, tech, other software technology people who were learning oil and gas as we went and brought on some senior advisors who really helped us. And one of the key things with our model was that we operated under like the strictest of strict confidentiality. We didn't talk about our customers. I mean, you know, you'll see even today, there's no logos on our website. We really respect, you know, we were advised in, coached in the way that the industry kind of traditionally operates, which is, you know, there's real value in trading on someone else's name. And, you know, software in general, like that's kind of taken for granted. Like if I sell you software, like I get to put your logo on my website. Well, that's not how the oil and gas industry works. So combination of the right advisors kind of advising us into the right cultural model, we had no problems with companies sharing data with us because we were proactively telling them, you know, we're not even going to tell anybody we're working with you, much less share your data with anyone else. And, you know, feedback we've heard, I mean, I've had other founders, you know, Silicon Valley kind of data science generalists who are like, oil's got a lot of money. They got a lot of data. Like, let's go do something there. Straight up call me a liar that oil companies would actually share proprietary data with us. So that was a really important thing kind of right from the beginning of having the right, you know, cultural advisement and then, you know, executing on, even though that was a harder road for us, doing it because it was the right thing. And then from there, as we, we did three years of R&D and then we went to market in 2017, we started building a subject matter expert centric data science team. And that was an, that's been an instrumental part of this. You know, I can speak to all this now, but I'm not a trained, you know, geophysicist. I'm not a trained reservoir engineer. I haven't done, you know, multiple budget cycles with an asset team that is like our customers. Everyone on our data science team has, and they're world-class data scientists on a standalone basis. And that interdisciplinary team is who, it's who the industry wants to learn AI from. 
geologist to geologist, geophysicist to geophysicist, engineer to engineer, and then they want that on a platform, most want that on a platform then where they're not beholden to those folks as consultants. We basically go in there and over a couple of months train them and then they're off and running. And one of the most exciting things is one of the greatest validation of that model was we've got you know, one of our leading customers who's you know, deploying, you know, really changing the look at they're using this to look at their entire drilling program and optimize that they have a pretty recent college graduate doing a lot of the work in their center of excellence. And, you know, to have a platform that, you know, the senior geologists, geophysicists, petroleum engineers could use, that's good. But when you have one, you know, and this is one of the greatest things we do with technology is really elevate what, you know, the capabilities are, you know, elevate any individual's capabilities. So when you can have, you know, basic training from an education standpoint and come right into the workforce and be making that valuable a contribution to your employer, that's good software. And we're proud of that. It's something that we say all the time that the oil and gas industry needs software that you don't have to be a data scientist to extract data from your assets. It needs to be software that anybody can run and gain those insights. And I think a lot of people kind of lose sight of, and this is a big part of our pitch as well, is they lose sight of that the majority of the market from ENPs, it's they don't have IT departments, they don't have the technology staff. It's like literally production engineers who've like learned how to play with SQL maybe like through an online course for two seconds, you know, and it's they don't have the luxury of the Anadarkos and the Chesapeake's and the Devons and the you know, the super majors, right, as well. So I think it's, it's understanding that, understanding who the customers are and building something that's extremely powerful like you guys have done, but also making it extremely easy to use because you also have that cultural barrier you have to overcome. And people are naturally resistant to, to new tools and, and to change, especially with their daily processes. Yeah, and you know, when the stakes are as high as they are in upstream, they, they should be. You know, there's a healthy amount of skepticism. And look, I'll be the first to admit, you know, there there is a way to summarize our business model of, or the, the business model of like, give me your money, give me your data, and I'll show you how to do your job better as a non-starter, right? It's got to be bigger than that. But there have been folks approaching the oil companies since the day after the first well is drilled, saying like, give me money and I'll help you be better. The industry has, you know, most of that is nonsense. You know, most of that Charlotte and snake oil. Yeah, at the end of the day, we're still, you know, service-based company. We're, you know, we're not offering a downhole service or surface equipment service. It's just a digital service. Yeah, but the, I mean, the industry holds us, you know, as startups, as entrepreneurs, and really as any vendors to the industry, hold us to a high standard. And for those of us who are, you know, and you guys are too, you know, we're executing, we're delivering value as we do that. People, you know, that information does get disseminated and it's a very relationship-based industry, as we all know. And But for those of us who can really deliver and, and understand the industry and conform to what the industry needs and evolve with it, you know, it's a tremendous opportunity and it's a fascinating industry. Absolutely. And before we wrap this podcast up, on that note, if someone's listening and they're an entrepreneur... They know they're an entrepreneur. You know, they, they're maybe having some reservations about going out on their own. Do you have any advice from them? I mean, someone like yourself, you started out bootstrapped, a little bit of seed capital from some of your previous ventures, and then went on to raise funding. Do you have any, any advice for those folks that are looking to go out? So I'll share a couple things here. The only guarantee is if you quit, you fail. And the money, you know, and making, you know, having some big exit someday, that, at least for me, and, and I've, I haven't met anyone who that's enough motivation to do this for. I seek out in all areas of my life the things that are, I lose track of time. You know, like I've done some rock climbing. I have no idea how long it takes to rock climb. I have no idea how long it takes to ski down a run. You know, I sit down to work. And from the day one when I started working on this, just like hours and hours and days just disappear. 
if you have that kind of passionate resonance with a software project and it's aligned with, you know, energy optimization upstream, you got a much better chance of success than something that's just kind of a passing interest or just starts to feel like time's dragging too soon. Might be, you might, might not be the right opportunity. It's a little too gritty of a process to go through if you're not passionate about it because there's a lot of ups and downs and sometimes <laughs> it seems like there's more downs than ups. So you definitely have to have the passion. Yes. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. I mean, I think we, so I started GDS at the same time. So it was 2013 and then going through that downturn and now WellHub is really the continuation of that vision. Slight pivot from what we've learned. Essentially, that was my, my three years of R and D before we, before we did this. And yeah, you really have to, I mean, even to this day, like, you know, I, I'm just extremely excited every time we have all hands meetings, get the team together, talking about what's next, just to have that passion burning you have to have that. And like you said, it can't just be like, yeah, an exit would be nice and, and thinking about that, but that's, that alone is not enough to hold you over whenever shit gets real. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know? no, for sure. And, and one thing on exits, by the way, and people, people ask me this all the time, you know, what's our exit strategy? And, you know, at first like, I'm like, well, we don't have one. And like, you see the blood rush out of their face. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm focused on building a great company. And when I see founders get focused on early exits, like they leave a lot of value on the table every single time. Great companies, people want to buy early stage, people want to buy mid stage, people want to buy late stage, people IPO. Don't worry about exit strategies. Focus on building a great company. Focus on building a good foundational company that's successful and opportunity comes along with it. Exactly. 100%. Well, Luther, this is a great talk. Well, man. yeah, guys, it's been I so fun. It. Thanks for having me on the show. And I, How do people get a hold of you? We have, yeah, yeah. Can they find you on LinkedIn? Website? Yeah, sure. So I'm link, LinkedIn, Luther Birdsell, pretty unique name there. Our website's oaganalytics.com. My email's luther at oaganalytics.com. And guys, again, I mentioned off uh, before we started, we're huge fans of your show. I subscribe, listen to all your podcasts. Oh, my team does as well. And it's really been a treat to be on the show. So thanks so much for yeah, having me. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate yeah. you. Pleasure all ours. Pip was sleeping. Goodbye, guys. <laughs> 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 <laughs>